0: Good morning. The reading from God's Word this morning is from Song of Songs, uh, Chapter 4. That's page 682 um, in the Church English Bible. So I, I see there's some hands up, and the stewards will bring you a Bible. Quite a long reading, so please do follow along. And if you are looking at another verse in the Bible, or another language, you're trying to find it. it's roughly in the middle of the Bible, it's a bit of Proverbs, Songs. Okay. So, this is the man speaking. It says, He, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with the courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountainside of Moor and to the hill of incense. You're altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart. With one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your head. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as, a honeycomb, as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates, choice fruits with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. She, awake, north wind, and come south, Blow my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. He, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Friends, eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. are about love, signatures are about promises, fireworks are about celebrations, Hobbies are about war, and marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, Sir Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting on the front. He has pursued bride and wonder, and now he just has to wait, and when she eventually comes. The whole room stands, and stares at her beauty, immaculate, dressed pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands, they make promises to hammer a whole, for better, or worse, for second, or worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, sign promises they have just made. They sign their names. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they will act again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union.
1: Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all the many ways in the world around us that we can spot spiritual truths. And we pray you would help us today understand this great truth of how we belong to Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. If you closed Song of Songs or switched it off during that video, it would be helpful for you to have it open. I'm going to talk from there. Here is the question, is this marriage about that, the gospel? You may or may not have been aware this week that the Church of England, which is the church body that's sort of run by the state in the UK, so it's not independent of the government as this church is, its leaders are appointed by the government, have been debating whether they should change what they teach about marriage. And I guess if this marriage is just about this marriage, then what Christians have always believed is outdated and out of step. If marriage is merely about consent for the time that it works for both partners, it gives them legal safety in that consented relationship, then of course, if it's just about that, Anyone who is an adult should be able to consent to that with another adult. The person's body, their sex, or their history, whether they've been married before, should have anything to do with it. <clears throat> and certainly if you've been following any of the debate, the church debate this week, that's been the point of people who want change. It seems unfair that some people can have this and some people can't. And that would be a good argument if this was just about this. But this is not just about this. Companionship, commitment, intimacy. Marriage is a signpost on the road, and it is more about the thing it is pointing to than it is about itself. There is one story in history, one thing that matters more than everything else, which is that one glorious day God will be reunited with his people. At the moment, we are separated by sin. All in us, the brokenness of the world, and every story that unfolds is just that story. It's actually written into our male and female bodies. Marriage is one sacred way of pointing to the real story is much more about that than this. So every Christian must consider not just whether they would like companionship or sex or children. That is secondary to how all of us live out that we are all Jesus' bride, his people. Many people will not get married. Many people's marriages will not be what they wished for. In a sense, God is fine with that because all of us can play our part in the story that matters – that, not this. Now, I sound like a Valentine's Day Grinch – sorry about that. Uh, But um, the Bible and me are negative about physical desire or marriage or romance. This book of Song of Songs we're reading is all about that. The best song of all songs, the song of songs, is about love. And today, you might have noticed, it's not very subtly about sex. The Bible's not embarrassed or negative. God celebrates sexuality as a great and good gift to us. But there are loads of songs about that. Literally millions of songs about how people love sex and intimacy and love. So why is this the song of songs well the best song of all songs is the one that opens up that that deep intense god-given desire we have points beyond itself to an all-consuming all-fulfilling passion rooted in the very reason the universe exists the way jesus Most of this chapter of this song is basically foreplay between this now married couple before at the end of the chapter the curtain closes over their intimacy and their friends, the chorus, sing a song about the beauty and satisfaction of them being united with each other. But I want to say hidden in this chapter are actually three melodies, three tracks, three different and as we look more carefully and more deeply, We'll see how this is about that. Here's the first thing that we see. There. I said. That. Commitment, confidence, intimacy. So you We've met in Song of Songs the for her lover, who is the very best of men. He has the power of a king and the gentleness of a shepherd. And he meets her and he offers her all of of his riches. He looks her in the face and she fantasises about the joy of being able to join his family. Welcome to his table. And last week Josh showed us her looking for him and he appears in rather grand style. And it's like a cinematic picture that the intimacy we're looking for in other people is only ultimately met with the glory and grandeur of God. Well, chapter four starts and the situation has changed. This long poem of his admiration of her, we discover in the middle, verse eight, she's not his bride. The marriage has happened. And he talks to her about how in her love for him is enticing, satisfying, a locked garden that catches up all his sentence. Then, in a clear, polite, but clear reference to sex, she welcomes him into the garden, and he finds deep satisfaction in their unity. Now, to note, it's not graphic, is it? It's not rude. There's no, you know, there's nothing filthy about this. It's like uh, a film where you know what's going on, but the camera has panned away and the song goes in the background, the one the friends sing, the quote about how, what's happening. So there's no awkwardness that they're having sex here, but it's also respecting that such moments are essentially private and between them. It's interesting, in many cultures and Middle Eastern weddings I've discovered reading this week, the couple do retire to their room straight away after the wedding, and everybody else celebrates while they're there. And the idea, I think, is to think that this gift they have been given is very wonderful. We should all celebrate they've been given it, even though it's private to them. Western mindset is very different. We think sex is only good if I'm included. And that's what we think about it. We don't celebrate other people enjoying that, but other cultures are different. So there's a song here. It's a good song. The searching, the longing, the desire for each other is followed by a commitment then a building of confidence between them, and then the deepest possible intimacy. There's good insight here into the way dating or courtship and then marriage and then sex should work. All of this is a precious gift, which we damage by being intimate too quickly or demanding sex abusively in a marriage where there's no confidence between people. There should be a time of longing, a time when you're overwhelmed with love but holding back. And commit to each other, become bride and bridegroom. And then in the safety of that commitment, you can give this intimate appreciation of each other. It is mostly the groom doing that in, uh, in our story, and I think that's probably given the way that power works between men and women in the world. It's much more dangerous in the world to be a woman than a man. It's often the man's job, particularly, to admire and assure and create safety and confidence in the beauty of his wife, and that makes happy. Intimate. He learns to define beauty as the person he's now married to, and none of the rest of us need to know the details of that, we just know it's happening. And We think it's good that it is. There is a song here, track one, Keep Intimacy for Marriage. It's saying what Christians have always thought, sex is for marriage, but also I think it's saying, keep these deep personal words of appreciation and love and honour, hold back that deepest part of yourself, your deepest feelings, until you've created this safe and happy space of commitment. La- in the last chapter, the bride expresses, please don't awaken love before it desires. She's saying, listen, this whole thing is totally intoxicating. It's possible to overpromise and under deliver. Keep the intimacies of shared beds or shared homes or shared holidays. Better to keep those deep words of love for when you're committed and use them to build confidence. And particularly men, if you are married, please do whatever it takes to convince your wife she is the epitome of beauty to you. Win her confidence. And wives, don't be cynical or dismissive or cold when your husband wants to do that. So commitment, confidence, intimacy. That's the first track we see here. It's a good song. It's certainly different we hear about this now which probably go a little bit more sort of intimacy confidence commitment so i'll try you out i'll see if you make me feel the way i want and then i might commit to you and there's a christianized version of that too where people say well i'll follow the rules but really what i'm doing is trying people out and then i might commit to them later that's a good song But for lots of people, I think, it's a pretty hopeless song. People are hearing this song today in all sorts of settings. Maybe you are now married, but you didn't do it this way. Or maybe you're of the opposite sex, so this doesn't hold any power for you, this picture. Or maybe you have suffered the trauma of divorce, and you look at this and think this is laughably shallow advice. Maybe you're a tough road of a difficult time. and this advice that you should compliment your spots a bit more, you know, annoying. Sexual problems are not going to be solved by more talking. Or maybe you feel like, I did do all of this, I did do it all in this order, and it still didn't work out for me. And a million other ways people are hearing this, so on, and so on, and so on. <coughs> So track one, commitment, confidence, intimacy, it's a good application of the biblical pattern of one man and one woman for life to a small number of people, people who are courting or navigating the physical side of a happy marriage. But if you're further on and have not done this or are not at this stage, this melody seems a bit thin. So we can dive deeper into this lyric and see more. Track two. You are beautiful like the most beautiful thing. Okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room, shall we? Some of the pictures this guy uses to describe his new wife are weird. (laughs) Maybe this is the Valentine's Day moment. Please do not write in your card. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. There's a picture of a flock of sheep just shorn there. They don't look like teeth, really. Your hair is like a flock of goats. It's like, have you ever... Uh, And the the books about song songs are so funny trying to make sense of these pictures. One writer said, in the days before dental treatment, he's just commenting on how good it is she still has all her teeth. (laughs) Your neck is like strong enough to hang a thousand shields on it. In what way exactly are her breasts like a small slender antelope that typically has curved horns? It's so weird. Your stomach is like a mountain of myrrh. There are differences with other cultures there, I think. They're not so obsessed with thinness as us, but still. Lips drip honey and milk. Your clothes smell like wood. Weird. You get the point. It's strange language, not something we devise to get each other in the mood. And the language, you see, is borrowed from other places in the Bible three pictures he's actually talking about. The admiration of her are pictures of the land that they lived in. These people had a land to them by God, and a promise that the land would overflow with flocks and oil and fruit protected by towers when they walked the right path God. And so the best compliment he can give her is that this love they have really makes him think of perfectly knowing God and experiencing God's blessing. The scarlet cord, the myrrh and the frankincense, the fragrant oils, the smell of cedarwood from Lebanon, all of that is language, pictures of where God met his people in the temple. These people had a building at the centre of their life, the holiest, most sacred space where they could encounter God. The priest wore a scarlet cord. The air was purified with perfumes of myrrh and frankincense. An amazing room was constructed with the best cedar wood from Lebanon, brought, as he describes in verse eight, over the mountains. So her beauty to him is because she reminds him of the sacredness of the temple. And he describes her as a locked garden that's a picture of course of her waiting for commitment and confidence before she's happy to sleep with him. But there's a story here, the whole Bible is a story of people who lived in a perfect relationship with God in a garden and they were thrown out and the garden was locked. And he's saying to her the pleasure of union with you is like access back into that intimacy with God. All of the things he says about her at the end of the passage, the fruit smells, the well of living water flowing through, all of those are taken almost directly from Genesis 2 descriptions of the Garden of Eden. He desires her, but the best thing about their intimacy or beauty calls him to look higher to be blessed by God, knowing relationship with God, intimacy with God, restored. Can you see that the language is just beginning to say that this is actually about that. He thinks she's beautiful, but the biggest thing in his gaze is not her beauty. He's not lusting after her, but rather saying, you know, it's weird, isn't it? He's not looking at her and saying, oh, your hair's so beautiful, what does that make me think of? Oh, yes, the goats. It's the other way round, the centre of his view is how good it is to be blessed by God, how amazing it is to know God. His deepest desire is to know God, and so the most powerful way he can speak to her is to tell her that. The value and beauty of their love is that it calls him to know God more. The heart of their romance is not to make her the center of his world, but to say, Use us both to the center of our world knowing God. Now there's something really profound and deep here that I don't really understand yet, so come and talk to me afterwards if you've got any clues. But there's much of the way the Bible talks about femininity is nothing to do with like makeup or like staying at home and being a housewife or other like stupid ways. Christians have talked about femininity. But rather the Bible talks about how women's bodies echo the structure and the function of the land and the temple, garden, in the way that men's bodies don't. women embody what it means to meet with God. And the groom would agree with that. There's something mystical about this, but one person I read this week pointed out that when God became human, with a woman's consent, He took up his first residence in a woman's body. I'm reading the Old Testament, that shouldn't be surprising because all of these pictures where God lives, the land, the temple, the garden, are compared to femininity. But let's be practical here. Her beauty to him is because she opens up what it means to know God. And that song is a good one. It is teaching us that romance and passion Our desire should be for someone who brings us to know God in a deeper way. This whole thing we've been doing over these last few weeks, that sort of sexuality and spirituality are very closely linked, makes some of us feel a bit sort of weird. Now, it is interesting, I think that's just us. So I was listening to the radio this week and there was a song by Ellie Goulding playing. There's been a lot of song lyrics in this series, hasn't there? Josh even did some singing last week, I'm not going to do that. But Ellie Goulding is singing a song this week all about, it's called Saviour, and it's all about like how her boyfriend, her partner, is saving her. And she says in the language, I think, something like, it's a spiritual thing. So this sort of closeness of sexuality and spirituality, it's not weird. We are just really messed up about sexuality. We are taught sex is an amazing physical feeling, so get it as much as you can. And Christian teaching that goes wrong, or secular teaching, just says people have a right to have that feeling when they want. Or maybe you've been brought up in a very conservative religious environment, and so the whole thing has just been very taboo. No sexes for heterosexuals to have in marriage if that's you yourself. That is it. But if Jesus is the lover of our souls, he can get into our desires and change what we want. And someone who knows Jesus in this intimate way will be transformed into desiring a person who helps them get to know God better. We are used to talking about sex as a thing. It's a thing that I want. But sex is union with a person and here in song of songs it's saying it should be union with the person whose beauty i love because they reflect and honor and love jesus who is the most beautiful thing to me men are treading somewhere sacred temple like when they then approach a woman who displays this fruit of knowing god Now, there's so much I could say about this, it's just worth saying, isn't it? We are just so utterly miles away from our pornified culture. And pornography itself is the opposite of respecting women as sacred gifts. And Christian men often talk in a way that's not not sort of like saying, oh, pornography is really great. But they still talk in a way that is very demeaning to women. There was this terrible trend that went round a few years ago of pastors putting in their Twitter bios about how they have smoking hot wives. It's So crass and embarrassing and not sacred. I think a lot of men believe, I don't know whether women believe this, a lot of men believe that you know when you're single, keep your lust under control, but when you're married, all your selfish lusts can just be set free. And the picture is totally different. It says, rather than that, are desiring the deepest possible union with someone who reminds God's beauty. It explains why the Bible just assumes that where Christians have a choice who to marry, they will marry another Christian. Because it just assumes what will be most attractive to you is the ways they show the presence of God in their life. And so that asks questions about where you are if that's not something you find attractive. And similarly, the Bible would counsel us all through the book of Proverbs to say, it's not just sort of any Christian. Only give yourself in intimacy in commitment to a Christian who you can say you love and admire because they bring the sense of God. Because what they do draws you into relationship with Jesus. That is far more important than physical chemistry Hungering for sex with someone is not the love the Bible describes here. Longing for union with someone because you point each other to Jesus is what the king is. That's another good song. It's a healthy song, but again, a hopeless song for many of us. Maybe you're thinking, I would love to find someone like that. Or I've made a not at all like that. Or I'm hooked on pornography despite knowing its ugliness. Or I thought I was marrying someone like that but turns out they're not. Or a million other personal griefs and struggles. That song is a small, for a small number of people who are courting or working on a better marriage, a vision of spiritual beauty in relationships. But many of the rest of us might feel like, oh yes, this is just like the bit in the game show where they say, here's what you could have won. It's a good song, It's not yet the song of songs. Because track three says, this is about that. There are three stories that are all the same. The story of Song of Songs, the story of the whole Bible, and the story of every Christian. Song of Songs begins with a longing for intimacy and fulfillment. She approaches the king seeing her own ugliness, seeing the things that she has done and had been done to her and the way others look at her. That's the story of the whole Bible. Begins with intimacy being lost and longed for and it's the way many people approach Jesus, if you read about him in the Gospels. And it is the way you must have felt sometime or other if you're a Christian now, longing for intimacy, but knowing your own mess. In Song of Songs, to her delight, she finds her king, and he loves her. He wants her in his family, like the people Jesus called his brothers and sisters, like you if you've really met Jesus, she realises it's God himself she's encountering, just like you have if you've met Jesus. There's a wedding when you have been united to Jesus, when you came to faith in him, there is a symbol, a ceremony, like a ring, a baptism, That expresses publicly your personal union with Jesus. That's why baptism is important. There's a word we use both for weddings and for theology. It is the word consummated. A marriage is consummated when the couple sleep together. Everything in his plan for the world is consummated when Jesus returns and he's united with his bride, his people. All of God's plans in history will be consummated then. And he will, as we've heard read today, wipe away every tear. It will be a perfectly satisfying experience of being welcomed. And Where we sit now, if you're a Christian today, is after the commitment but before the consummation. Jesus is committed to us. We are married to him, but we're not with him yet. And he is looking on us today if we are trusting him, and like this groom, pouring out on us, love, admiration, welcome, assurance. We come to him unsure, Or aware of our sin or bored or spiritually flat and he says to us listen I delight in the ways I see God shaping you the way the blessings of God are in evidence in you I love that and that awakens our desire for him Let's talk frankly to finish, for many people here today this whole area of intimate relationships is to coin a phrase, a dumpster fire. It is everything messed up. You have grief that you have been abused or mistreated or you're reading this passage and waking up to see that someone in your life is not honouring you the way they should be. Or you've come to church today from doing something that is really wrong. Or you've done it all right, the way Christians told you you should do it, and it didn't work out. Or you're just longing for the intimacy described here. And sometimes I'm afraid what you might have heard from the church, if you're feeling like that, is that you should be happy, you should be joyful. Don't you believe that Jesus is enough? And that is a dangerous half truth that is not respecting at all the grief and brokenness we have to walk through now the consummation is coming we will perfectly know one day the deep and everlasting comfort face to face with jesus he will be united with us he will wipe away every tear that is coming but for the moment maybe What you need us is just to weep with you. But not just that. Let him assure you, let him woo you, let him remind you, let him tell you that he sees all the fruit of the Spirit growing, all the ways the presence of God is changing you, all the ways that you and your struggle are bringing the scent of Eden to this broken world, the feeling of knowing God to the place where you are. He sees that in you and he loves that. It steals his heart to see you living as a Christian. You know, the weaknesses and the struggles you have are probably the way that these amazing fruits of knowing God are showing in your life. And he loves you. He's got you, he desires you, he wants you to know the confidence of that love today, even if we're waiting for consummation. This is the song of songs. This marriage is a temporary thing for some people. It is a powerful embodiment of that, that you, if you trust Jesus, are loved and assured every way God is bringing you. You know that he has you. He loves the change that he sees in your life. One day endlessly joyful consummation is coming from every sin and hurt and pain. In the meantime, feel the confidence of just being loved by him. So wherever you are relationally and however you feel about it. You are wildly, passionately loved and where God is making his presence felt in your life, Jesus is admiring you, delighting in you and wants you to be assured. We are about to take part in our own sacred act of taking communion. There are real physical assurances that Jesus wants to give us today that he loves us. His own body, his own blood, he couldn't more physically assure us than that. His death to bring us to God, giving up his life for us, makes him the most trustworthy groom. As we eat and drink today, we can be assured he looks on us with love. Of course, we feel our, our unworthiness. In a moment, we will confess that. But when we look up from confessing, like the bride, we will find his gaze of love on us, admiring and delighting in what God is doing in us. There's no greater delight the bride has than to to the groom's table in song of songs so we are going to gather now round the table of our groom as receiving assurance his own body and blood
0: that he delights in what God is doing in us